I mean, in this day and age, you know, the coroner's words, how could this happen in Britain, in, in this era, um, have got to echo round every politician and every housing officer's head until such time as say it is not going to happen again any more than we'd leave the, you know, the, the gas on on the oven. Um, whatever. It's got to be um, so basic. That everybody operates around keeping people healthy. And, you know, for goodness sake, a two year old child deserves a lot better than now I've got. Hello, and welcome along to the Northern Agenda podcast, your weekly dose of the politics news that matters to the North, from Blackpool to Barnsley and Bamburgh and everywhere in between. I'm Rob Parsons, Northern Agenda Editor for Reach, the publisher of the Manchester Evening News, Liverpool Echo and Hull Daily Mail. I write a daily newsletter about Northern politics, which lands in your inbox every weekday lunchtime. All you have to do to get it is subscribe at www.thenorthernagenda.co.uk. Our political guest on the podcast today is Tony Lloyd, the Labour MP for Rochdale, whose patch has been thrust into the political spotlight because of the shocking death of two-year-old Awab Ishag. Awab died after prolonged exposure to mould in a case that shocks the country. But are the actions being taken both locally and at Westminster going to stop tragedies like this from happening again? That's what we want to find out from Tony Lloyd. But first, as we head into Christmas... There's a present coming down the chimney with Santa for anyone who enjoys swingometers, late night results and canvassing for votes in the cold and the wet. The next few weeks will see not one, not two, but three by-elections for parliamentary seats in the north of England, putting Westminster watchers on high alert as they try to assess what it all means for the fortunes of the party leaders. On December the 15th, we'll find out who will be replacing Kate Green in the Greater Manchester seat of Stretford and Urmston as she leaves to become Andy Burnham's deputy mayor. And sometime in early 2023, there'll be a by-election in West Lancashire, where the incumbent MP, Rosie Cooper, is resigning to take up the job as chair of the Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. But the first by-election grabbing our attention is in City of Chester, triggered by the resignation of Christian Matheson after complaints of serious sexual misconduct against him, which he denies, were upheld by a parliamentary watchdog. What have these three seats all got in common? They're all held by Labour with pretty big majorities. So it would be a big surprise, I think, if they changed hands. But there's still plenty of local angles to explore. So to find out what the big issues at play are in Chester, let's speak to Mark Smith, local democracy reporter for Cheshire West and Chester. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. Good to have you on. Very good to have you on. So I've kind of suggested that City of Chester is a safe Labour seats. Uh, but as always, the, the history is always a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? What's the history of the city of Chester patch? Well, traditionally, it's actually been a Conservative seat, um, but it was won by Labour during uh, Blair's landslide in 1997. Um, it actually saw Giles Brandreth was the Conservative MP for the patch back then, who you'll, you'll often see now on uh, Celebrity Gogglebox, I think is where he, we tend to see him these days. Um, and then it was uh, won again by Chris Matheson in 2015, who's been the, the MP for that seat ever since. There was a brief interlude where the Conservatives did win it back. But yeah, very much a traditional Conservative seat um, up until the last kind of, sort of 15, 20 years, really. Oh, that's interesting. And what's the polling suggesting? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's looking good for Labour. I mean, Labour's certainly going to 
uh, keep the seat, I think, from what polls suggest. We may see um, a decent-sized swing as well um, from Conservative to Labour of around 11.5%. That seems to be what the polls are showing uh, at the moment. I guess with any by-election, the interest of the national media is always, what does this mean for Vishy Sunak? What does it mean for Keir Starmer? What what can they tell us about the next general election whenever, whenever that comes? I mean, do, do you get the sense that that's how this by-election is being seen locally as well? Or is it going to be sort of local rather than national issues that kind of decide who wins? Interestingly, I think there's going to be a mix of both. I mean, Cheshire really as a county, MPs and councillors tend to do well on local issues um, for, for a number of reasons, really. But for instance, when the, the red wall fell at the last election, the Labour MPs in Cheshire were relatively safe. They all they all kept their seats. And there's always the very much the, the feel that if you perform well locally and you are noticed to be performing well locally, people will kind of abandon their tribalism, really, and, and, and keep you in your seat. So I think... Very much it'll be local issues again for that reason. I think um, Sam Dixon, who's the, the Labour candidate, she's got strong links to Chester, which I think will will serve her well. But as you suggested, you know, there is, um, I suppose there's been a backlash to the Conservatives nationally and it will be a case of seeing, you know, how much local people want to take the opportunity to, I suppose, stick the boot in. Um, the feeling I'm getting really from talking to people is campaigning around this by-election, especially from the Conservative side, has been kind of tepid. Um, we haven't seen a lot of kind of big hitters heading here from, from you know, the, the government ministers that you would normally see. Um, I, I suspect if Labour do win by a significant majority, it will rather be, rather than people coming out in force to kind of put the boot into the Conservatives, it will be more a case of traditional Conservative voters not being bothered to turn out. Um, that's, that's very much the feel I get at the moment. Now, it's been a while since I've been to Chester. Uh, and what, what I have in my mind's eye about Chester as a place is, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the historic city with links to the Romans. You've got the, the city walls, haven't you? There's a very old race course and the largest Roman amphitheatre in Britain and the cathedral, all that kind of stuff. I, I get the sense of quite a historic city, quite a well-to-do city, similar to York, I guess, in, in, in a few ways. I mean, is that is that what it's like, or are there, is there a bit more to Chester than, than the sort of a picture postcard version that, that most people might have in their heads? Yeah, I think like like with anywhere, Rob, you know, there, there are, um, there's a nice side to Chester, but then scratch the surface and it, you know, there, there, there's poverty too. And there's people struggling with everyday cost of living. There are businesses going bust every day uh, in Chester. Um, you know, quite some, you know, some famous ones. Uh, in fact, you know, I think Browns, um, the, the famous traditional department store, uh, closed its doors a couple of years ago, which was a big shock. Debenhams has closed since, so there are there are still those those gaps on the high street, even though it is, uh, you know, quite a beautiful looking town centre. You know, there's been issues around things like um, crime, antisocial behaviour. The council recently implemented a new policy based around drink spiking. Um, you know, on on on. It's, to sort of tackle issues around, you know, the the, the nightlife in Chester, um, and there are, you know, there are food banks, there are warm banks as well. Uh, Chester, Cheshire Western Chester Council recently announced they are opening food bank, uh, sorry, warm banks in the city as well. So, yeah, the, very much so. It's got that air of kind of classic, kind of I suppose, um, 
you know, traditional kind of middle class living. But yeah, like anywhere, there, there are those pressures too. And I think that's what people will be campaigning on on this election. It will be around cost of living and it will be around all the things that is on everybody's mind. One of the things that's always interesting in a, a by-election is sort of a, having a look at some of the weird and wonderful candidates that you sometimes get and some of the smaller parties and what they're talking about. Can you just give us a bit of a uh, a sort of potted overview of, of who who's in the running, who's declared so far? Yeah, there are, there are nine candidates uh, running at the moment. So you've got uh, representatives of Labour, Conservative, Liberal Democrat, Green, as you'd expect, Reform UK, uh, UKIP, Rejoin UK, Freedom Alliance and the Monster Raving Looney Party. I suppose the Great. two um, the two big hitters going for the who are most likely to win would be uh, Councillor Sam Dixon, who's running for Labour, and there's also a Cheshire East councillor called Elizabeth Wardlaw. Uh, she's a nurse, and she's a, as I say, she's a Cheshire East councillor, and she's from Congleton. And what have you seen so far in terms of campaigning? What have been the big issues that the two sort of main parties have been pushing on? Well, they are focusing on things like cost of living. I mean, that that is something, you know, it would be cynical to call it a vote winner. I mean, it's simply the thing that's first and foremost in everybody's mind whenever you ask them what their what their pressures are at the moment. It, it's rising costs of energy, it's food bills, it's, it's, you know, the general kind of fears that everybody wakes up with every morning, really, regardless, regardless of where they live and regardless of, of how financially sound other people think they may be. Um, so I think that's very much been first and foremost in the campaign. Um, I'd say from from the, the, the Labour uh, candidate who's who's kind of well known in Chester. She's um, also campaigning on getting world heritage status for the Rose in Chester, um, and also just around issues around things like um, the the discharge of sewage into the into the River Dee, which has been a big local issue. So very very much local issues, but also a strong uh, kind of tie in with cost of living. I'd say are the main issues here. Fantastic. And just to remind people, what is the date of the by-election so people can look out for it? It's next Thursday, so it's December the 1st. Excellent stuff. So a good way to start the uh, the, fest- the festive season with a nice, uh, a nice by-election. Um, Mark Smith, thank you for that overview of the City of Chester by-election. No, thank you, Rob. Great to be here. Thanks again. Now, as we record this podcast, the Housing Secretary, Michael Gove, is up in Rochdale for talks with the local housing association that owned the flat where two-year-old Awab Ishak died after prolonged exposure to mould. Awab died in December 2020 from a respiratory condition caused by mould in a one-bedroom housing association flat. His parents, Faisal Abdullah and Aisha Amin, who came to the UK from Sudan, repeatedly complained about the mould and they say they weren't listened to because of who they were. Since the full horrendous details of little Awab's death, Michael Gove has taken personal involvement in making sure housing associations like Rochdale Borough Wide Housing do more to prevent future tragedies. The latest measure, unveiled this morning, saw him block the £1 million in funding RBH was due to get to build new homes, and he says he won't give it any more until it proves it is a responsible landlord. The social landlord's chief executive, who earned £170,000 last year, has been kicked out and its directors have promised to do more to up their game. But is that enough? The local Labour MP, Tony Lloyd, has a Commons debate about Awab's death today as we record. 
So before he stepped into the Commons, he spoke to our producer, Dan McLaughlin, and this is what he said. So thank you very much for joining me today, Tony. It's a it's a tragic story. It's awful. Where do we go now that the full scale of the tragedy involving Oweb has emerged? Yeah, well, I mean, I think what we've got to make sure we don't do is to do that very formulaic saying that uh, um, we're going to learn the lessons and then do nothing for the next uh, many years. Um, it's really good to see that you know, the, um, that Michael Gove, the Secretary of State, is, is engaged. He's uh, in um, Rochdale uh, 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 making sure that he's talking to people in the Rochdale Borough White Housing as well as the, the council and, and seeing things on the ground, and that's right and proper. What I do want from him, though, is action that's going to have a long-term consequence. And... Um, we need to discuss what those are because some of the things he's talking about I don't think are helpful, whereas other things um, are going to be helpful. And I can go through those, um, I suppose, which if, if that's, uh, that's the right way. Um, I mean, the, the, the first thing, obviously, is to make sure there's an absolute crystal clear duty on any landlord. That's um, social landlords like Rochdale Borough White Housing, it's private landlords that um, things that are hazardous to health, and we now um, have from the coroner a very clear ruling that mould is part of that, so hazardous that uh, this poor uh, poor family have lost our, their, their, their two-year-old son, um, that things are hazardous to health are simply going to be beyond acceptable, but landlords have to act and deal with them. That's, I think, is so crystal clear and obvious uh, but we do need that underwritten there can be no excuse for ignoring it and there will be legal consequences that might be sacking people might in the end be um, criminal charges if neglect is, is so is so bad um, and it seems you know sometimes these things are, are draconian but set that's against the loss of a young boy's life and I don't think really people would say that's draconian they say it's just right and, and proper. Um, so that's one. The second thing we've got to do, though, is make sure that there is a proper inspection regime. For, and then by that, I mean things like the council, things like public health bodies, things like the environment agents, and they have got very clear power and duty um, uh, to inspect when, uh, when you know, for example, the, the landlord is not doing what, to, what the landlord ought to do. Because um, that way we can give some power back to uh, to tenants who get frustrated by, by constant brush-off. But that also calls on the government, and I've said this to this, the, um, the Secretary of State, there's got to be the resource there. You can't just say to the council or the public health bodies, you've got to do these things, but not give them the, the resources, which in the end means money, but it means people. Um, and train people to go and do those inspection roles that can make a material difference. Because giving people power and duty is great, but not if you don't give the resource to make those things work. So that those are the big issues, you think. Well, I know the family won't know, and the family really have been incredibly dignified in all this. They they want um, what effectively comes our abs more. Um, that places very clear duties on, on social landlords and private landlords so we don't see this kind of tragedy again. 
in, in the future. And if we can achieve that, then then maybe it won't just be words. It will be something that translates into protection for children and adults into the long term. That's something that the Manchester Evening News is campaigning about, the, the, the AWAPS law, to strengthen the legislation going through Parliament right now. It's received, at the time of this interview, over 120,000 signatures. Uh, what do you think of the campaign from the MEN? Yeah, I think that's great because obviously in, in the end, you know, this campaign, um, the MEN's joined in to make sure that uh, there's, there's a strong and powerful voice because to get that many people signing the petition is great. It shows people do care. It shows people want to see real change. And it, it's um, it's, it's a, a proper call to, to government, proper call to people like me to take this seriously. I mean, I do take it seriously, obviously, but um, but it, it's always good to know that the, the you know, ordinary folk, um, they, their voice can be heard. And the, the Evening News campaign has given that um, the, the, the capacity to have that voice. So well done to the MEN, um, well done to the 120,000 people who signed the petition and let's hope a lot more people take the same step. You said about Michael Gove's uh, intervention, you said some things that maybe he hasn't quite got right. What have they been and what do you think he should do to improve upon them? Well, Michael Gove, and I kind of understand why he's, you know, it's the, it's the thing we all think about him. He's talking about giving exemplary fines, for example, and he's announced um, today that Rochdale um, won't get some money which would be spent um, on on new housing. The trouble is that um, who who suffers from that? Um, who gets penalised? Um, if 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 uh, and the answer is it's not. You know, he says that the money will go to other other areas that can spend the money more efficiently. Well. Great in one way, but Rochdale has a massive housing shortage, particularly for properties that you know, Rochdale's not a rich area. Um, we're not talking about you know the sort of billionaires coming in um, to to buy property. But what we want is affordable and um, social housing. Ironically, that um, that ordinary people can get access to. If that money is taken away, then whilst I understand that looks like you penalising the housing association, absolutely what you're penalising really in the longer run the people who are desperate for uh, for reasonable quality housing in the in the borough of Rochdale. So I can't go along with that. What I can go along with is saying to the housing association, you know, the job you've done is is not being good enough. And they've sat the, uh, the chief executive, but we've got to question some of the other senior players. Ordinary workers in Rochdale for white housing will want to get on and do their job. And I applaud what they're doing on a, um, a daily basis to make people's lives work well. But if it's not well managed from the top, then let's change the management. Uh, let's not penalise people who are waiting for decent homes. So that's probably where we disagree. Um, the other thing, though, as always, and it's easy maybe for opposition politicians to say this, but actually, following a tragedy like this, one of our have got to, I've got to say, don't starve the appropriate bodies of the resources because to do that, you're just making it more likely we've got these these uh, situations that lead to tragedy in the future. So government's got to step up as well. It's good of Michael Gove, and I'm delighted he is taking this seriously. I'm delighted he is 
um, saying lots of the right things, things that I agree with. But I also want him to be able to go along to the Chancellor and say, look, Chancellor, you know, this is um, something that's now so serious that no government, Conservative, uh, uh, Labour, or anything else can afford to ignore it. Rochdale Borough Wide Housing have cited funding cuts as an excuse for the failures. Is that a reasonable excuse on its own? And what would be reasonable, maybe punitive response to RBH after this tragedy there? Yeah, I, 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 I don't think it's an excuse in the case of, um, you know, this this was simply dealt with wrongly and in, in a number of different ways. You've got a family who were reporting mold growth in the flat for, I think, three years before um, we had the tragedy of, the, of, of our wife's death. And they were desperate for help. They had support from um, from uh, health professionals who asked them to and the housing association to rehouse them. They, they, um, they'd offered um, solutions which were ludicrous, uh, like painting over mold. You know? I mean, most of us probably in our um, growing up years have lived in places that were, were not that good. And so I certainly have, you know, the idea you can just paint over mold is great. It's totally cosmetic. And three weeks later, the mold comes back. So um, the fact that they were offering that as a solution. Um, the fact that they didn't look at, at um, bringing in better ventilation, as the coroner pointed out, was a, a real issue. Um, across the piece, realistically, uh, oh, and, and the, the other one that's worth pointing out, they had this ridiculous situation where when the family consulted the solicitor because they were so desperate, the um, the Housing Association put a block on any repair work. Well, that's... Um, that, ought to be crazy and um in this case was was tragic so those weren't issues about lack of money those were issues about lack of management which is why in the end um even the the the, the board of the housing association recognized that the chief executive had no credibility but i must say i've asked them some questions about their own actions and the board as to whether they've got any credibility because really where michael Gold and i can agree is if we can get the, um, the housing, this housing association restructured with a, a dynamic and forward-looking management at the top, then um, then we're in with a chance of saying yes, give us the money for uh, for new housing, um, new house build, um, uh, because we can trust the newly structured organisation to do that job. And amongst other things, the local councillors said that um, it would be very happy. If the if the, the housing association could come back under council control, as it was, I think about fifteen years ago, uh, it was transferred into this new structure. May have been a good idea, may have seemed like a good idea at the time, but it's not worked. And um, so, um, so we put it back in the council, and then um, elected people, people who can be got rid of by you and me, the public, to make decisions on our behalf. And if we don't like what they do, then we can get rid of the lot. Whereas a uh, a faceless board with great respect, um, who first of all said they've got confidence in the now sacked chief executive, didn't give me an awful lot of belief that they're credible or they're the people to to move the association forward. Obviously, our web family are rightly furious and obviously grief stricken, and these are the words that have come from them. They said that we have no doubt at all that we're being treated this way because we're not from the country and less aware of how the systems in the UK work. 
IBS, we have a message for you. Stop discriminating. Stop being racist. Do you think that the family were victims of racism? Well, I think we certainly need um, an inquiry to, to look into whether that you know, whether that has got strength. I mean, some of it's got strength because we know, um, for example, that uh, communication um, well wasn't as good as it sh- it should have been, and even the uh, the um, RBH have uh, I think have said now that they're looking at make trying to make sure that where language is an issue that. Uh, it improved their procedures. So, you know, even if you just say at the level it's institutional that uh, that uh, people like the Shack family were, dis- were discriminated or were, were let down, um, we need to look at that. Now, whether it's more systematic than that, it's hard for me to say. But what I do know is it's part of the issues that need to be looked into because uh, Rockstone is a very diverse um, uh, community. And people should be treated um, with, with fairness and, 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 and justice, whatever the background. If the residents of Rochdale, that's, um, that's what I'd expect for my family and that's what I expect for my constituents. We're recording this podcast interview on Thursday morning and you'll be speaking in the Commons as part of a debate later today. Could you summarise what you're going to be discussing in that debate? Yeah, very much some of the things that we've already uh, discussed, uh, Dan. You know, um, the, the the need for um, uh, for us now to say we're not prepared to sit back and just use the the uh, the, the formula that um, that we're all terribly concerned and we and we move on until the next crisis comes along. Um, I want, to, and I'll be asking for the kind of action around things like our Labs law. Um, uh, like making sure that there is a proper response from the government that says, yes, we will take action, not just we'll think about it, we will take action to make sure that landlords of all kinds know that what the duties are in terms of, of health and in terms particularly of mould as, as a health hazard. Um, I, I need to, to know that, that that will have action. I need to know that the Government have had these promises in a sense uh, from Michael Gold and, and other exchanges we've, we've had. Um, but I, need, I do need to know ultimately that there will be the resource made available um, to make sure that that the that, that tenants will have both a voice and uh, where that voice is not being heard by the landlord, that there'll be other people that they can go to who will um, make sure that their voice is heard and actions are. And so we can make this kind of tragedy in the future. You know, I mean, in this day and age, you know, the coroner's words, how could this happen in Britain, in in this era, um, have got to echo around every politician and every housing officer's head until such time we say it is not going to happen again any more than we'd leave the the gas on on the oven. Um, Whatever, it's got to be um, so basic. That everybody operates around keeping people healthy. And, um, you know, for goodness sake, a two year old child deserves a lot better than now I've got. And so it's that sort of structure. It is the Arabs law, um, writ large, if you like. It's the, it's the voice of the family, which has been incredibly dignified, because their demand is that this should never happen to anybody else. They're not jumping up and down. Well, they are jumping up and down rightly, but they're not doing it in um, 
anything other than the most morally applaudable way. They don't want any other family to suffer like they did. And, you know, if we can't listen to that voice, then goodness knows. So, yeah, our law, I want uh, the government to, to say, roughly speaking, that they accept the principle of that. And that they'll, uh, from there, they'll, um, they'll, they'll make both law, uh, practice, and resource available to guarantee that will come into practice. Tony Lloyd, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Nan. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.